This program is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. Download their free mobile app and use the promo code BEST during activation for a chance to win $100. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, The Daily Show, The Progressive, The Young Turks, This American Life, The Onion Radio News, and Jim Hightower with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. And be aware that the first clip of the day has a couple of swear words. You might have heard of the Yes Men. They do social activism pranks on corporations. For example, last week they announced that General Electric, which uses loopholes to avoid taxes, was going to give back the $3.2 billion in refunds it got from the government. Or another time they told the media that Dow Chemical would finally be paying the victims of a massive chemical spill millions of dollars in restitution. Or another time they announced that Director Michael Bay would be giving us all two hours of our lives back. So after these hoaxes, the corporations have to come out and go, Oh, actually, that good thing you heard about? Yeah, we're totally not doing that. No, not at all. Now here's the interesting part. During the half hour when everyone thinks the hoax is true, the company's stock tumbles like crazy. GE lost billions. Dow lost billions. This means we've created a system where companies get massively punished for doing good things for humanity. Our financial market actively rewards being a giant cunt, like a radioactive Ann Coulter who's grown to Godzilla proportions. Does that not freak anyone out? So if a corporation announces it will hostily take over a 50-year-old locally owned company and fire all the employees, it's given the financial equivalent of a high five and a reach around. If on the other hand it announces it will give free AIDS medication to the dying people of Ghana, then Wall Street knocks it unconscious and draws the word queer on its forehead. Here's the thing, if Wall Street weren't around yet, would you create it to be this way? Would you say, let's make a financial system wherein companies are rewarded for being piping hot douche holes, and if one of them does something good for humanity, we'll treat that with suspicion. You announced you're going to pay the victims of a horrific oil spill? Jesus fuck, what are you, Sean Penn? You're a multinational. You can't go around caring about people. Could you imagine if every company did that? The whole system would break down. People would have food and clean water. There'd be fewer wars, death, and hardship. What kind of world would that be? Not one I want my trust fund babies to grow up in. Or the last tycoons in the House of Cards. His new book is called Money and Power. A Goldman Sachs came to rule the world. Please welcome back to the program, William Cohn. Nice to see you again. Nice last to be time, here again. Uh, you were here, uh, your sons were here with you uh, as they are tonight, and they were at that time shorter than me, so. Now they're a little taller. Thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> The book is called Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to uh, Rule the World. 
Uh, let me just ask you this. How much did this cover cost? Look at that. Look at that. Is that, that 3D? That's is gold. That gold. <laughs> embossed gold. That is embossed gold. This is an incredible documentation of the uh, history from the 1800s of this, of this powerful company and, and the many triumphs and, and near economic catastrophes that they have yeah. caused. Um, <laughs> how is it, as you looked at it, because what I like about this is it's historical, but it's also, it's, it's not so emotional as to be uh, uh, overpowering. D did you come out of this with a greater respect for their, uh, their wit? Or their, you know, what? Wit. What did that you find? That wouldn't be the word I their, would use. Yeah, their their wits. Uh, uh, their wits, perhaps. Yes, yeah. the S is important there. Yeah. I mean, I competed against them for 17 years, John. I worked on Wall Street for 17 years. Found myself working alongside them occasionally. No matter what firm I worked for, they always wanted to be like Goldman Sachs. So this was an opportunity to figure out what makes them so special. And I came out feeling, my God, these guys have been in and out of trouble their whole existence. Everybody puts them on a pedestal. And maybe rightly so, but you know they have been always in and out of trouble. They always use their wits to right. get out of trouble. There were many times I call it the Book of Revelations, but not in the biblical sense, because I, there were so many things that revealed to me about how how much trouble they got into throughout their entire existence, and how they used their connections or their wits to get out of trouble. It, it was fascinating. I hadn't, I didn't even, I wasn't aware of any of the well, that, trouble that they had been. So interesting is when you look at every major collapse uh, of our economy. Uh, boy, they're right in there. They're, they're, it's, but it is like, it's like Zelig. And I'm not suggesting they necessarily caused all of it, but. They're right there. But it is like, at a certain point, when, you know, if, if the same person keeps witnessing major car accidents, at a certain point, you're like, are you squirting oil on the road? Like, what's going on here? Well, they're always pushing the edge of the envelope. There is a collection of very smart people who are put on earth to make money. So no matter what the market is... <laughs> now, Just, I remember it, that biblical passage. That's, yeah. uh... Many people admire that skill. Yes. Yes, they do. Um, it's interesting that I thought what, what you found in the book is you said the, the crime here is not what's illegal, but what's legal. And maybe that's the, the, the better question. Maybe we shouldn't necessarily be angry at them for finding the envelope that we have allowed them to exploit. Well, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, for a hundred years, they have used their influence with government. One thing I discovered in this is that Henry Goldman, the son of the founder of the firm, Marcus Goldman, was sitting at the table when they created the Federal right. Reserve System. And he, wrote the rules of regular, was it 1914 you were saying, right? Wrote the rules right. that Goldman, a hundred years later, is benefiting from. How do he know? He's, a, he's a genius of I some know. sort. It's incredible. <laughs> this firm is out of control genius. Out of control genius, and yet when they leave Goldman to run uh, the Fed or the government, which they suddenly do in they're not so smart. <laughs> That's what's so amazing is there is something about the collective Borg-like wisdom that allows them. But you know, why is it that when they go work as like the Treasury Secretary or anything like that, suddenly they don't know what the hell's going on? <laughs> well, of course, as you can imagine, they might have a different view of that. I think Bob Rubin probably. <laughs> thinks he did a good job as Treasury Secretary. I'm and, sure he does. And I think Hank Paulson does too. Right. But, but we all uh, you know, may have a different view. Right. But yeah, look, look, we still got the head of the 
Commodities Future Trading Commission, former Goldman partner, head of that. They're talking about the new head of the European Bank, Central Bank, Mario Draghi, former Goldman vice president. You know, Goldman's tentacles are still everywhere. The head of the World Bank is a Goldman graduate, if you will. Mm -hmm. So they're still, you know, influencing all sorts of things. Their tentacles, if you will, are everywhere still. Well, that's very comforting. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. He'd let us in, knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade. The weakness in the housing market shows no signs of abating. In fact, home values keep falling around the country, and the percentage of Americans who own their own homes has been dropping down to where it was 13 years ago and may fall even further, according to the New York Times. This spells trouble for the overall economy since housing often leads a recovery. It hasn't happened this time because this wasn't a typical recession. It was a recession that was centered in the housing industry after Wall Street played games by bundling mortgages and then betting on them and then betting on their bets with credit default swaps and other crazy derivatives. When the whole thing went bust, the Bush and Obama administrations could have and should have intervened aggressively to rescue not just the bankers, but the homeowners as well. They could have and should have insisted that any banks that got federal bailout money in exchange would have had to reduce all their mortgages by 25% or 30 since the market was obviously inflated. This would have helped the 60 million people who have mortgages and all those facing foreclosure. And so it would have put a floor on the collapsing housing market. But instead, Bush and Obama were content to bail out the banks and let the homeowners suffer. And now, the whole economy continues to suffer as a result. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. There's never been a better time to check out Stitcher for your mobile device. When you activate their free app using the promo code BEST, you'll get instant access to thousands of podcasts streamed directly to you without syncing. You'll be entered automatically to win $100, and you'll help support Best of the Left at no cost to you. No reason not to check it out, so head to your preferred app market and download the free Stitcher app just named the best app ever for your iPhone, Android, BlackBerry, or Pre, and be sure to use the promo code BEST during activation. Uh, we're talking to William Cohen, uh, the author of, of Money and Power. Story. I want to talk about this particular derivatives crisis with, with Goldman. So the Senate just releases a report that is basically incredibly scathing on the idea that, that Goldman was duplicitous with their own clients, that they were uh, hedging bets against a, a subprime market that they themselves, they were selling these subprime derivative crap things they knew were crap to their clients <laughs> a term. while making directional bets the other way. Absolutely true. And, and there's good reason why Senator Levin is so upset, because not only that has the senior executives of Goldman denied that they did this, 
their own documents. You know, you got to love Senator Levin for at least one thing. He made 900 pages of secret internal Goldman documents right. available to people like me. And I'm very appreciative of that. Their own documents show exactly what Goldman did, which is in December of 2006, they made a huge proprietary bet against the mortgage market. And good for them. I mean, that was smart. Everybody else was going long the market. The thing is, they kept on selling and packaging up and selling mortgage-backed securities to their clients. Right. So they didn't even tell their clients that they thought the mortgage market was going to collapse. They didn't tell Hank Paulson. They didn't tell anybody. They just kept doing both things at once. Now, I think Fitzgerald said the ability to hold two opposing thoughts in your head at the same time is genius. I don't know whether it's genius or unethical or immoral or maybe illegal. And I think that's right. what Senator well, that, Levin right. that's is what trying, trying to find out. Is, are they saying that? Because I think you make the point that uh, to this day, with the even presented with the email that says, "Hey, let's go the other way on this and still sell our crap," uh, uh, that they, they would say, they, "No, they, is they, that a legal protection they're doing? Is it the Lenny Bruce deny, deny, deny?" Look, their own CFO David Vigneault wrote in an email that we we have on the big short. Well, what does that mean? That means we have on a big proprietary trade, and again, then they get in front of Levin a, a year ago, literally a year ago, and deny it all. Right. And that's what Levin's so hacked off about, and I, and I don't blame him. Here's what I'm uh, uh, so upset about. So we go through all this to bail them out. As smart as they are, as great as they are, they don't exist anymore if the taxpayers don't feed them billions of dollars and if the Fed doesn't allow them to borrow at the overnight window for 0% and buy back treasuries at what, 3%? I mean, it's, it's easy money. It's, it's a, a money-making machine. It's a gift from us to them. To give you a sense of what they're allowed to do, this is how they, they save themselves. This is how they get the big profits. Uh, I decide uh, that I, I want to help you out, so I'm going to loan you $10 so that you can uh, sell it for 15 And we just keep that we do game. do that all day long. And we do that all day long. Except and it's you, billions. Right. And then they come back and go, hey, we're back in business. We're doing great. And, by the way, not only them, but the rest of Wall Street right. paid themselves $150 billion of bonuses this past year. $150 billion. How about the people on Main Street? So why is it that when we complain about this, that is engaging in class warfare and not understanding that, uh, as, as someone at Goldman said, they're doing God's work? You know, and, and by God's work, I assume they mean earthquakes and hurricanes. <laughs> that someone was Lloyd Blankfein. But why is that? Why, how is it that we... What am I not understanding about this that, is, that makes them so necessary? John, you do understand it. You understand this is the way the world works. It's been working this way for a century. Ever since Henry Goldman wrote the rules of the Federal Reserve Bank, the revolving door between Washington and Wall Street has been going along for decades. The regulations that these guys live by are written by them, not by the regulators. While we're sitting here having this nice conversation, they're busy in Washington writing the regulations with the Goldman Sachs lobbyists and the Morgan Stanley lobbyists right now. We're sitting here having this nice conversation. They're doing important work, writing the regulations by which they're going to live by. And the regulators asked them to do it. It's incredible. You would have thought after this crisis we would have learned something about this and not allowed this to continue. But both the end of the Bush administration and the beginning of the Obama administration had one goal, to reestablish the status quo on Wall Street. And that's what they did. They were very successful at that. Only they forgot about the rest of us. And we made it happen. They took our money and made it happen. They always say that, well, the Wall Street recovery is always a little bit ahead of the jobs recovery. Yeah. How I'll, far ahead is that? How, way, you know, way ahead. But that is, in, in what they would say in this situation, and, and we, we've asked them to, to, to come on, and, and they've always uh, 
declined graciously. They've already said that we are actually, because five minutes for them would be quite a bit of money. So, um, <laughs> and we appreciate you being here. But what they would say is, well, we are providing the lubricant for the world economy. You know, how much of that is real and how much of that is a shell game that they're playing to hide whatever? Is the financial services industry now and is America in danger of it being too much a part of our economy, not a real part of our economy, and not the, uh, uh, not as, we don't need to be as lubricated as, <laughs> as, as they are. may say that, that we should be? So this is the kind of answer I begin with once upon a time. Okay. Because once upon a time, they did provide those important services. Capital to companies all over the world to grow for new jobs, for new plant and equipment. Advice on mergers and acquisitions. You know, I don't know why they pay so much for it, but that is actually a real service. Advice on how to, how to invest your money. Those are real services. And they still do that to a lesser degree today. Right. But, the, but since these firms started going public in 1970 and were getting other people's capital instead of their own, that was a huge change on Wall Street. Right. And as a result, now it's like one big casino. This whole thing with this financial crisis was the result of making huge asynchronous bets. They win, they get big bonuses, they lose, we bail them out, baby. And they get big bonuses. Yeah, it's it, and then on the back end they get big bonuses. Right, yeah. it really is. It's it's an incredible thing uh, that it has become. But it does feel like it, it not a hostage situation necessarily. But if they've convinced us that if you let us fail, you will implode. Yeah. It's Stockholm syndrome. I mean, or, or, or you know, I, I I can't quite get over. I mean, I'm not a violent person at all, not even slightly. But I don't understand why there hasn't been protests in the street about what Wall Street did here, right? And, and why they're allowed. Yeah. It really is something. Uh, money and power. It's on the boat shows now. You got to get a hold of this, William Cohn. I ain't no bleeding heart, but damn, this world is tough to beat. There's a million decent people one bad day from being tossed out on the street. Sometimes it might make sense to turn your head and claim survival of the fittest But you're a stronger man than I if you can sit and watch somebody die There's now new evidence that the middle class in this country remains under siege, despite some good signs on the jobs front. The latest numbers show the economy added 244,000 jobs in April, beating expectations. That's, of course, good news. The jobless rate is now at 9%. That's not really good news. In fact, it's a little higher than last month. But analysts say that it shows people have confidence in the job market and have resumed actively searching. President Obama says it's proof that the economy is on the rebound. We just went through uh, one of the worst recessions in our history, worst in our lifetimes, the worst since the Great Depression. But this economic momentum that's taking place here at Allison is taking place all across the country. But one of the problems is that the jobs Americans are getting are pretty low paying. 62,000 were created by McDonald's alone last quarter. So that's a huge chunk of the jobs created last quarter. But as the average working person is struggling, corporate profits are soaring, with CEOs raking in like they've never done before, literally. In fact, the Fortune 500 companies made a combined $10.8 trillion last year, and their profits went up 
81%. That's a stunning number. In 2010, the average compensation for an S&P 500 CEO was $9 million. That's their average. That was up 24% from 2009. So what are politicians doing about all this? Are they going to create jobs, seeing that we're still at 9% unemployment? No, they're doing the bidding of corporations. Republicans are now busy trying to fight against the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which would protect consumers. And they're also busy passing new laws to help the bankers, as if they weren't helped enough. Are there no bounds of reason? Joining me now is former Clinton Labor Secretary Robert Rice. He's now a professor at UC Berkeley, and he's going to help us try to figure this thing out. Great to have you here, as always. Hi, Jenkins. Hey, so first question is, look, how long we've been told, hey, if the corporations do well and they've got these big profits, they'll hire more people. The Republicans keep chanting job creators, job creators, but it doesn't appear they're creating nearly enough jobs. So why is there this disparity? Uh, well, one, one reason, Jenk, that they are doing so well, and we see uh, corporate profits almost up to pre-recession levels right now, is because they're cutting their payrolls. I mean, payrolls are one of their biggest costs, and if they can cut their payrolls and ship the jobs abroad or replace the jobs with automated uh, machinery or the Internet or software, uh, that means more money for the corporation and higher profits. And that's exactly what's happening. Uh, jobs are really not coming back at the rate that they should be coming back, largely because these corporations basically want to make more money. So when the Republicans tell us night in and night out, they say, oh, we got to create more jobs by giving more breaks to the businesses and banks. I mean, how? And by the way, they're doing it right now. You can talk to us about those, you know, laws they're passing to protect the bankers as we speak. How much nonsense is that based on this evidence, these facts? Well, it's a lot of nonsense. In fact, it's huge nonsense, Jenk. I mean, these big corporations are now sitting on almost $2 trillion of cash. They don't know what to do with it. They're buying back their own shares of stock in order to further increase stock prices and executive pay, because so much executive pay is related to shares of stock. They are doing mergers and acquisitions, buying up other companies. Again, they are expanding production abroad. They are not expanding jobs here in the United States by any reasonable amount. I mean, you know, the job number look pretty good, but if you consider that we need, it's uh, about 350,000 new jobs every single month for the next three or four years to get back to 6% unemployment. We're, we're really, uh, this is a very poor jobs uh, number and a very poor jobs report given what we ought to be seeing in a recovery. Hey, look, and part of the problem here is that the whole idea that they've been pushing for over 30 years now, this trickle-down economy, just doesn't work. Let me give you two graphs here that are you know, really telling. When you look at the top 1% of Americans, uh, their average income tax rate uh, has declined from 34.5% in 1980 all the way down to 23.27%. Now, the number you're looking at there is their income, their share of total income for the country. It went up from 8.5% to 20%. So what they told us is, hey, if you lower our taxes, as we did there, now that's the number you're looking at there, don't worry, you know, it'll come down to you. But it didn't. 
we've got 9% unemployment, where, where'd it go? It went to them. It went from 8.5% to 20%. So, exactly, Jack. There, there, there's simply no trickle-down. I mean, trickle-down economics is a big, fat lie. Uh, and we have right now many, many uh, top executives, CEOs, hedge fund managers, Wall Street executives. They're making oodles of money, and they're paying 15% taxes. Uh, that's lower than most uh, secretaries, lower than most uh, lower middle class, working class people. How are they getting away with it? Because they're capital gains. They're treating it more and more of their income as capital gains and as dividends that are taxed now at 15%. I mean, That's they are setting the rules. You and I, average working Americans across this country, uh, the middle class, are not setting the rules. Yeah, look, that's because they rigged the rules, as you say, because they bought the politicians. One last real quick thing. Let me show you a chart. Graph of income inequality. We're now between Uganda and the Ivory Coast. We have worse income inequality than Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Ethiopia. What has become of this country? And if we don't have a middle class, who's going to buy those goods? Well, exactly, Jack. In fact, with one reason uh, we are having such a hard time coming out of the gravitational pull of the Great Recession is because so many people don't have enough money. I mean, what we ought to be doing right now and what our politicians in Washington ought to be doing, instead of worrying about the long-term budget deficit and cutting spending and, and all of that stuff, right. what they ought to be doing is worrying about putting cash, more money, and more jobs for average working people. I mean, uh, you know, cut payroll taxes. I right. mean, uh, uh, create a WP. Exactly. Uh, for people if, yeah. you, if you can't provide right. any other way of, of creating jobs. Secretary Rice, thank you. Think of us talking points and false choice after false choice. And there's no prominent voices on the left. Five companies own everything you read, hear, and see. Misleading the people, still calling it freedom of the press. Disaster of epic proportions, they got us all in. Traitors in our midst. Screwed over when corporations bought in. To Congress. Representatives of representing mostly lobbyists While the typical oblivious American is fine with all this Given the daily dose of celebrity gossip Government held hostage We kicked the worst out of office But at the core it remains rotten regardless Now how much can you rob the system Before it can be classified as like call of crime This is class warfare This is class warfare This is class warfare Can, can the government move my cheese? All right. One of the big ways that politicians used to create jobs, the way that FDR did it back in the 30s, put more people on the government payroll, build dams, build roads, spend and spend and spend. Nobody, or nobody with any power anyway, seems to be talking about doing that. But there are all sorts of things that politicians are doing to create jobs. Only the jobs in the private sector. Hannah Jaffe Watt explains how. In this story, I'm going to be talking about Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. But I should tell you up front, I'm not going to be talking about any of the things you know or have heard about him, which I'm assuming are mostly this. Governor Walker is proposing deep cuts in public employee pension and health care benefits and has called for eliminating collective bargaining rights for everything but pay. We will not be denied our rights to collectively bargain. It is Walker's proposed budget cuts that have the unions now up in arms. Yeah, yeah, all that, I'm not going there. I will not be saying the words union or collective bargaining in this story, except for that time. And that's it. I want to talk about something else. So before Walker became famous nationwide for taking on Wisconsin's public unions, in Wisconsin, he was famous for this, his pledge to create jobs. 
something Walker has never been understated about. Here he is at a campaign event in February of last year. Today, uh, I want to make a a first-of-its-kind campaign announcement that I think is going to be earth-shattering. Today, I announce in front of all of you here today and everybody else who's going to be listening on the news and reading in tomorrow's newspaper, that if you elect me as your next governor, I pledge to you here today and to all the other citizens of the state of Wisconsin that by the end of my first term, we will create 250,000 new jobs in this state and 10,000 new businesses by the end of that first term. Walker's pledge to create jobs wasn't earth-shattering in and of itself. But what was interesting about it was that he was so specific. If we're going to look at how a politician creates jobs, this guy named a number, and not just once. No, in fact, he repeated it over and over and over again. This is Craig Gilbert, a political reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. 250,000 jobs. I will create 250,000 jobs in my first term as governor. Uh, I mean, the message was the number. Last February into the spring, Scott Walker had two opponents, Democrat Tom Barrett and Republican Mark Newman. For months, the two men ridiculed Walker's number, his specificity, called his 250,000 jobs number meaningless, arbitrary, an empty promise. Why 250,000, they'd say, because it's a round number? Why not 285,000, 300,000? This went on and on until around June, it quietly stopped. And the next thing that happened was that one by one, Walker's opponents named their own numbers. First, Barrett. Our immediate goal is to regain the 180,000 jobs that we have lost during this economic downturn. That's what I propose today, a comprehensive vision to create Wisconsin jobs. Then Newman. But when you put the package together, we're talking about 300,000 jobs in the state of Wisconsin by 2020. That's the target. They couldn't beat Walker at the numbers game. On November 2nd, Scott Walker, the first to name a number, won the election for governor. The 250,000 jobs man would have his opportunity to job create. So, is it working? Are jobs being created in Wisconsin? Sure, we're in recovery from the worst recession since the Great Depression. You may have heard that. So yeah, there are new jobs in Wisconsin. All you have to do to see job creation happening is look in the newspaper, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel Classifieds. Bed Bath & Beyond has a couple positions, as do several fast-paced dentist offices. There are opportunities for self-starters interested in selling Hondas. Titan LED invites sales representatives to join the lighting revolution with a splashy full pager. It's endless in terms of the opportunities because everywhere you look up, there's a fixture. This is John Rashino performing his job title, Titan LED Marketing Director. He told me they're hiring sales agents like crazy right now, and these are newly created jobs. The company is brand new on the LED lighting scene, a booming industry. Oh, uh, phenomenal. Uh, there, there isn't a day that uh, goes by that uh, we don't have agents walking through the door and the phones are ringing and, and we got... Uh, Purchase orders coming in and shipments going out. So it's actively growing and growing very aggressively. Two sections down in the one ads, Brookdale Senior Living is hiring 15 people. The ad explains Brookdale Senior Living is growing fast. And in person, the executive vice president and treasurer, Kristen Fergie, explains why. There's just a huge disconnect between the supply and the demand um, in the later years. 
Translation, there's about to be a lot of old people. There aren't enough places to put them. And that's what Brookdale offers, places for old people. But, and this is an important but, I asked the LED guy if he had heard of Governor Walker's job-creating plans. He had not. Nor had the majority of people I called in the classifieds. Kristen at Brookdale had, but she said Walker was not the reason Brookdale is building new old-age homes and creating jobs. That, again, is thanks to the supply-demand disconnect. Governor Scott Walker is not behind these jobs. He's not aging people or making them crave LED lighting. These jobs are created on their own. In fact, before Walker was elected, before he did anything in office, the Wisconsin Department of Revenue projected that the state would add about 190,000 jobs by 2015, Walker's deadline. So 190,000 jobs if Walker stepped into his fancy governor's office day one and proceeded to do exactly nothing all four years. If he played Farmville on Facebook his entire term, jobs would still be created. So another way to think about the 250,000 jobs man is that he's got 190,000 that are freebies, which means he's actually going for 60,000 to reach beyond what would happen anyway. Now, how's he going to do that? The Wisconsin Capitol was sieged by anti-Walker protesters for weeks in February, early March. When I arrive, it's almost April, and the Capitol looks kind of like the front lawn of a frat house Monday morning. There are a few soppy posters poking out of garbage cans. Small groups of protesters show up at random hours. The drum circle has been reduced to one guy with a pail. Governor Walker sits one floor above that scene. There's no whiteboard in his office with a jobs tally, no big red 250,000 target, just him in a suit with a slogan. Wisconsin's open for business. Scott Walker has a Clark Kent thing going on. He's sort of generically handsome. He blinks in sync with his speech. He's a fan of the word literally. And he begins our interview by telling me about the night he won the election and introducing me to his sign, a move I'm pretty sure he uses with all the reporters. It's green, picture a campaign poster, but this one just says, Wisconsin's open for business. For, in fact, I put it up, a sign like that, literally the night I won election, November 2nd. From that point forward, it's about telling the state what you're going to do. And so literally just said, Wisconsin's open for business. And we said, we have a plan to help the people of the state create 250,000 jobs by the end of our first term. So 250,000 jobs by 2015. Walker and I talked in circles for a bit. I asked him, but how do you do that? Create jobs. He tells me the private sector creates jobs. The government just has to get out of the way. But of course, his pledge was that the government, led by him, would create jobs. I asked for clarification, and eventually we come to this. Walker believes government helps create jobs through incentives. He speaks mostly of taxes and exclusively about lowering them, something he started working on right away. January 3rd, took the oath of office, literally called a special session, and then handed the next morning, the legislature gave him a stack of various pieces of legislation, putting things that were specifically targeted towards lowering the tax burden for employers based upon jobs created. Under these new laws, employers who create jobs now get a tax deduction, two to $4,000, depending on the company size, per head. So two to $4,000 deduction for each new hire. Companies that relocate to Wisconsin get two years tax-free, 
And Walker expanded another tax credit program for companies to make capital investments that create jobs. Now, all this, I should say, is an incredibly typical approach. Hand out goodies to entice the private sector to hire. Republicans tend to do it through tax cuts, Democrats through spending, many do both. But they're all basically after the same thing. Less money for the government, more money for the private sector. Get the jobs numbers to go up. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able. As anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the Onion Radio News. A rich first grader buys a whole sheet of gold stars. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Bremerton, Washington first grader Max Carr, son of Boeing CEO Robert Carr, used a small portion of his $100 weekly allowance today to buy himself a sheet of the gold stars used to reward academic achievement. Young Max, who recently received a C-minus on his phonics homework, had this to say. Mommy took me to the mall, and now I have ten gold stars more than anybody in the whole class. Carr added that his dumb classmates have no idea that students can simply purchase great job Mickey Mouse stickers at a store. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. that you were successful? How will you know that you created 250,000 jobs? We track them. I mean, we track every month. We track, for example, the first month of this year, Department of Workforce Development tracks the number of new jobs they're adding in the private sector. Uh, in January alone, there were 10,100 approximately new jobs created in the private sector. We'll keep building off of those patterns. And that's but how do you know that's you? Well, it's not. You, you, you don't have a personal clicker every time you talk to somebody and get a job. It, this is kind of a weird thing to say. On the one hand, Walker's saying he didn't create those jobs. Government can't create jobs. But on the other hand, he's saying it's helpful to have all these incentives to encourage businesses to create jobs. I mean, for us, it's the overall climate. It's creating a job. It's selling the state. If it's an employer that I've never personally talked to, but an employer in, in Rice Lake or La Crosse or Wausau or Green Bay says things have changed. I feel better about the economy. I feel better about the state. I'm going to go out now and hire those five or ten people I was thinking about. All those collectively, that's where the real job growth is going to come. Right now, Walker is on target. If job growth continues at the current rate, he'll make his 250000 
And in his mind, he will have done it in a very subtle, specific way. The role Walker has cast for himself is one of professional government seducer, in which he makes the idea of hiring, something you maybe had on the mind already, look that much more appealing. He's adding some alcohol to a singles mixer, maybe dimming the lights a bit. And then, let the hiring begin. In a moment, I'm going to join over here and, uh, and sign away, but before that, I'll take a Walker signed part of his get, jobs legislation into law at a company called Saris uh, in Madison. They make bike racks. It's a small business that's growing, likely job creator. Good place to make an announcement like this. So a good place to test his theory, too, right? To ask if these incentives actually make a difference. The CEO, Chris Fortune, was in Dallas at the Super Bowl when the governor visited. When I visited Saris, he was in the back office with a cold, and he got out a calculator. Okay, let's say at the end of the year, I've hired five people. I get a $4,000 deduction for each, so $20,000 off my total income. That's a deduction, which at the end saves me something like $270 per new employee. Whatever, let's say you hire somebody at ten dollars an hour. Twenty, that's twenty-two hundred dollars or twenty-two thousand dollars plus benefits. What is it? Two thousand eighty hours a year times ten. So, I, at two thousand dollars, I don't. That doesn't work. The math doesn't work for me as the motivator to hire people. Mm-hmm. It may work for somebody else. These financial programs, but it doesn't work for us. It's strange, though, because Governor Walker was here to announce these new programs to encourage businesses to hire, and yet you're saying it would do nothing for you. Well, we could benefit from that if we do hire people. The thing I I am saying is that what that bill does isn't going to drive our decision on what we're going to do. Are there employers for whom the math does work? Who could get Walker those extra 60,000 jobs? I asked Governor Walker, are there companies that you can point to right now, three months into your term, and say, these are companies that we've helped create jobs? Yeah. City Brewing uh, in La Crosse, Wisconsin has 550 people working there. They've got five lines. They want to add a sixth line. And one of the ways that we're helping him do that, we announced just on Friday, was we're giving him $490,000 in tax credits. Meaning if they hit those 100-plus jobs, they get $490,000 worth of credits off of their corporate income taxes. I called City Brewing. They told me, yes, the governor's tax incentives played a role. At one point, they even said a large role in their decision to hire. They'd been wanting to add that sixth line for a while. It was in the plans a year ago. They're making a $13 million investment, so $490,000 off their income taxes is a small incentive, but they said it did help push them over the edge to do it now, to say yes to job creation. So add 100 jobs to Walker's whiteboard. I ask him for more examples. Uh, Stone Trailer is a good example. Overall, 478 jobs. They met with us. We put a package together. If they don't create the number of jobs they said, they don't get as big of an incentive. Stoughton Trailers is 20 miles southeast of Madison. You know the boxes you see trucks pulling around the highways, carrying fruit and toys and toasters from one place to another? Stoughton makes them. Keith Wise makes the hires, 478, which is a lot of people to hire. It's, it's crazy. It's fun. 
It's uh, nerve-wracking at times. Stoughton will get a $750,000 government loan for investing $11 million in a new plant. I ask if they would have hired the 478 people without these government programs. We probably would, but at a much lower rate uh, than what we are. Yeah, much slower, much slower. We'll be able to get a lot of people in here a lot quicker than what we normally would. So out of 478 jobs, maybe Walker gets to count half? Keith would not play this game with me. And I can recognize that it's kind of a ridiculous game. Andrew Ryshovsky, an economist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, basically told me as much. He kept repeating, look, the decision to hire someone is so complicated. Any employer, he told me, has a long list of factors to consider. Taxes are one factor, but not the most important factor. And they tend not to be at the top of the list. It's kind of a genius political move to say that you, the politician, are going to create jobs. A job gets created, and it could have been you, or it could have been because people are getting old, because we're coming out of a recession, or because people are buying more bikes. How will one ever know if the economy grows and employment is 250,000 jobs higher uh, four years from now than it is now, will we know that it has anything to do with government policy or not? And that's one of the very difficult and probably unanswerable questions. So we will never know if he was successful or not? Uh, I think that's fair to say. Oh, we could know that he failed, right? Yes. If uh, at the end of four years only 200,000 jobs have uh, been created, he has failed in terms of his promise. But does that mean that does that then mean that there's nothing a government can do to help create jobs? Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying there is nothing a government can do. That, that overstates the case. Governments can make a difference. If you want to get businesses to increase hiring now, over the next year or two, you have relatively limited power. Which is, of course, exactly what you want if you're a governor. You have four years. You want the jobs now. Ryshevsky says, well, if you get a governor who's willing to be patient, there are things he or she can do that will likely help create jobs, such as... I'm going to improve the quality of the state university system, or I'm going to invest in community colleges, good roads, good bridges, to have so physical infrastructure, to have an educated labor force. Uh, there are possible ways in which uh, you can make a difference. But you won't see those results till the end of your second term, if you're lucky, or till the next guy's in office. So in the meantime, politicians with a jobs number to achieve focus on the short term. Republicans and Democrats hand out tax cuts and other incentives to seduce employers into hiring. And of course, those goodies cost something. In Wisconsin, they account for $117 million in taxes that will not be collected over Walker's first two years. This in a state where they're fighting over every dollar. So that leaves the government with less money to do the things Rashovsky is talking about, to spend on education so that employers can hire smart people, to build good roads and internet infrastructure so businesses can transport goods and innovate. If you go with tax cuts, you might seduce some employers to hire now, 
but you'll hurt future employers who needed you to spend on schools so they could find educated workers to come up with great new ideas. If you go with long-term spending, schools and internet, you have to increase taxes to pay for it, which can mean businesses on that job creation fence might be pushed to the anti-job creating territory. In both cases, you've zeroed out your efforts. You've had some effect on the one side, but canceled it out with what you did on the other side. But that's the choice you have: long-term or short-term. Whether the governor is Democrat or Republican, someone you love or someone you hate, politicians don't have a lot of options. At best, they'll get a bunch of new jobs for the somersaults it took to get there. At worst, they had some impact, did something, but have no idea how to measure exactly what. Hannah Jaffe Wallach. She's part of our Planet Money team. Planet Money is a co-production of our program and NPR News. Now here's a shocker: Republicans are refusing to budge an inch in budget negotiations. You don't say. Well, with Democrats and Republicans battling over whether to extend the government's debt limit and trim budget deficits, negotiations are being complicated by disputes over basic economic facts. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because the Republicans are lying on purpose about those facts. Now, I'm not just saying that. We're going to show you. We're going to prove it to you. For example, John Boehner's speech on Monday. He said this. The recent spending binge, stimulus spending binge, frankly hurt our economy and hampered private sector job creation in our country. Not remotely true. The CBO finds that the stimulus put between 1.4 and 3.3 million people back to work and cut the unemployment rate by as much as 1.8 percent. That is what economists agree on. There aren't. Almost any economist out there saying, "Oh no, no, no! It's, we did the stimulus, and it actually cost us jobs." There is no such theory. John Boehner made it up. He also made this up. And we will never have real economic growth if we're going to raise taxes on those in America who create jobs. Now, under Clinton, the economy grew by an average of nearly four percent a year. Now remember, we had much higher rates at that time. Actually, they weren't much higher; they were a little higher. And guess what happened? 22 million jobs were created. What resulted was the largest economic expansion in history. So they say, "Well, you can't raise rates. If you raise rates on the job creators, we won't have any jobs." You'd have to be unconscious the entire decade of the 90s to believe that. You can't possibly think that they. Just missed the decade of the 90s. Oh, 22 million jobs were created under the Clinton rates. Whoopsie doopsie. They know they're not telling the truth. And then you've got another doozy by Boehner. It's possible to make changes in a way that will ensure future beneficiaries will have access to the same kinds of options、uh, that members of Congress currently have. 
They just keep saying that. I'm amazed by it. Not remotely true. Here's the reality. Under the Ryan plan, by 2030, the government would cover only 32% of the average 65-year-old's health care costs. In comparison, the government covers 75% of health care costs for the average member of Congress. Look, these are not matters of opinion. These are facts. Either the speaker is ignorant and he has no idea what the facts are, or he's purposely misleading you. And what's worse is why. It's because they don't care about you. They care about their donors, your pawns to be manipulated. What they want to do is get you to believe things that aren't true so they can do what's right for their donors, whether it's the big insurance companies, the big oil companies, the big banks. Those are the guys who pay people like John Boehner. And that's why John Boehner and those Republicans who say things that are demonstrably false are not honest actors, and we shouldn't treat them as such. But if you look for truthfulness, you might just as well be blind. It always seems to be so hard to give. Honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. Reaping extravagant profits from $4 a gallon gasoline, Big Oil has been pumping out the company line in an effort to deflect public anger from itself. We don't set prices at the pump, the executives lecture to us. The price of gasoline is determined by the cost of crude oil, and that price is set by the free market. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. First, the market for crude is hardly free. Production of crude oil is controlled by an oligarchy. Plus, the price of crude is being manipulated by high-flying, unregulated speculators. Second, the price of gasoline is not only determined by the cost of the oil, but also by add-on costs attached by the handful of corporations that refine oil into gasoline. Third, these few refiners also constitute a price-setting oligarchy, otherwise known as big oil, that rips us off at the pump with $4 a gallon gasoline. Note that crude oil prices have fallen lately and consumer demand has also fallen, yet the price we consumers pay for gasoline has remained high. Curious, huh? This perversion of the law of supply and demand comes courtesy of BP, ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, and ConocoPhillips, the chief oligarchs of big oil. To keep our prices high, they simply squeeze back the amount of gasoline produced in their refineries. They are now operating at only 82% of their processing capacity, an artificial manipulation that has cut the supply of gasoline by 900,000 barrels a day. By squeezing supply, they keep pump prices from falling, thus squeezing more money out of our wallets. With this squeeze play, refinery profits doubled in the last year. This is Jim Hightower saying, Big Oil could easily process more gasoline, lower our prices at the pump, and still make a big profit. But that's not enough for these masters of greed. They're not out to make a profit. They're out to make a killing.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. The top hedge funds make more in an hour than a middle-class household makes in 45 years. A middle-class household. We're not talking about a schizophrenic hobo or a professional mime, which are often hard to tell apart. It would take a half a century for a middle-class family to pull in what a hedge fund manager makes in an hour. What level of obscene does this need to reach before we stop respecting and supporting this system? It's not like there aren't repercussions to this runaway Frankenstein Chris Brown on a bad day version of capitalism we've created. The economy collapsed, no one is a reliable job, the deficit it gets worse, our infrastructure is collapsing, and during that sentence I just said, a hedge fund grabbed up more than you'll make this year. We've created a cancer, and one of the hardest parts of defeating cancer is finding it. But we know where this one is, and as it grows larger, we seem to celebrate it. We admire these billionaires as they grow. We think, man, if only I could be as cancerous as them. Man, if only I could suck up the resources of this country while others go hungry and homeless and live in tent cities being lorded over by some bearded tent city mayor with a mangy sheepdog and a defining rod like a smelly Moses, then... I would have the American dream. Should it bother us that by obtaining a monstrous version of the American dream, these people effectively destroy the American dream for so many others? Let's have a race for the cure for this. Let's all wear ribbons showing we despise this cancer. Let's have school bake sales with little girls going, Come on, mister, buy a muffin. Or don't you care about telling hedge fund managers to go f*** themselves? Let's cure this any way we can. Have we tried radiation yet? economic uh, disparity, we're in horrible shape. That's the one thing apparently Pakistan's got on us. We have worse economic disparity than Pakistan. You know that? Here, let, let's show you a chart. This is income inequality, and this is done um, by uh, the CIA, based on the CIA fact book, uh, and it's a, called a Gini uh, coefficient. Uh, that's just how they calculate it, simply. Uh, we're right about where Uganda is in income inequality, and then comes the Ivory Coast, 
And then Pakistan and Ethiopia and Kazakhstan are in much better shape. And then you have Norway and Sweden. Now, look, why is this important? Now, people might see the top of that list and go, well, look, you know, if maybe income inequality is awesome, that's because we're rich. No, no, no. This is what happens in third world countries, where there's very few rich who have all the money, like some dictatorships, and everybody else suffers. That's not what the USA is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be out of middle class. We built this amazing middle class that was the envy of the world. And one of the theories as to why we have this huge income inequality now and our dwindling middle class is because, well, we lost a lot of the unions. And the unions had upsides and downsides, but they have shrunk dramatically. One of the upsides that the unions had was that they negotiated for better wages for the middle class. And so before, we used to have ratios of average worker to CEO that were high. Of course, everybody gets that they're not going to get the same amount of money. Now they're astronomical. Because why? Power begets power. Money begets money. So the people with the power and the money, they go and buy the politicians, and they say, all right, now give me another tax break and make sure the average guy uh, pays it. Make sure you get... You know what they're doing now in all the states with the Republican governors? They're like, minimum wage laws, uh, we don't like that so much. Child labor laws, uh, can't we just put the kids back to work? And by the way, in some of those states say, let's put the kids back to work and pay them less than adults. Uh, it, this is how they crush the middle class. And now we're between Uganda and the Ivory Coast in income inequality. That isn't what made this country great. So don't believe the hype when they tell you, oh, we got to lower taxes on the rich again. That's crazy talk. Washington. Um, just finished your uh, Dumb as the Fossils We Burn episode, uh, which was great, if a little depressing on the, on the overall state of where we are in energy in the country. But I was calling you to respond to a voicemail from Dominic that you played at the end of the show. Um, and the, the, the guy's right. Energy policy has to change. It's incredibly uh, damaging what we're doing to the planet. We have passed the point, frankly, of irreversible harm. Um, not irrecoverable. It's not like we're doomed, but we have changed the climate in ways that we will not be able to undo. Um, and, and we're headed down a very dark path. But I'm, I'm always unsettled by calls for absolutism that we have to ignore all other issues and deal with climate. Because the fact is, you can't. Um, Climate is intertied with a number of other issues. Um, how we deal with transportation, how we elect our politicians. Um, I think campaign finance reform is perhaps at the root uh, of why we can't get energy policy to move. And so um, that's my personal bug of it. Like how we elect politicians and how we pay for the elections, I think is one of the fundamental things. But I can't legitimately say we have to drop every other issue and deal with that. That's kind of the one I'm passionate about, and I throw, you know, money or effort or, or, or work behind. But 
I still have to realize the need to, yeah, we have to fix climate too, and we have to have better energy policy, and we have to have social issues, and we have to protect the Constitution. We have to have uh, due process, and we have to defend the right to free speech. And you have to have a full court press. Um, I'm excited that uh, somebody uh, is, is interested about climate and hopefully is working forward and calling senators, calling congressmen, uh, going out rallies, doing the things to push that issue forward. That's an important issue. But, you know, just I, I have to see it as an integrated part of a total effort rather than let's fix one thing at a time because that never really works. Uh, anyhow, it, it, it's almost a minor nitpick, but there's my thoughts. I uh, felt like sharing with you this morning. Thanks for everything you do, Jay. Bye. Hi, Jay. Uh, this is John from San Francisco. My comment has to do with, well, it's a big thank you for your show. Something was on your show that, that just blew my mind. I, I, I had this big question, like, what happened to um, the prices of food a couple years ago? I knew that it was happening. I knew that, it, that the prices were going up, and I knew people were going hungry. It was in a lot of the headlines. But while it was happening, what all I could gather at the time was that it was related to, um, you know, people were kind of making the comparison, you know, here we, here we are in the United States, we're, we're taking corn and we're burning it in our SUVs. And meanwhile, other people around the world are starving. So, you know, I kind of, the issue dropped off the, off the scene for the last couple of years. And I think I must've just gotten distracted by uh, the whole financial meltdown in the U.S. and, and uh, and, the, and the, you know, the, the real estate bubble. And I was just blown away by the description of um, the person you played who uh, explained that, yeah, this, the Goldman Sachs is involved in, in this too. And, and, it, and it kind of relates to the real estate bubble because when that was tanking, you know, when they, when they kind of saw the handwriting on the wall, uh, they said, oh, well, let's move all of our ill-gotten gains from, uh, from real estate, which we thought was stable, to something that's really stable, food prices. And uh, I was just blown away by the, by the whole mechanism of, like, there's no food shortage. There's no problem in supply or demand. The demand is there. The supply is there. But the problem was in these financial derivatives, these financial instruments, uh, and food speculation. And that, that there was all of a sudden a shortage of supply compared to the increased demand, where every, after Goldman Sachs got involved, then there was a kind of a run on the market. Uh, everybody wants to get out of real estate and dump their money into the next uh, sure thing. I had, I had always wondered what the hell happened with that food crisis and why did it go away? Uh, now I think I have a more plausible answer than just biofuels. Because if it was biofuels, we're still doing that. Well, then, you know, why, why have food prices stabilized? You don't see those headlines that people are starving right now uh, like they were uh, during their crisis. So I, I do believe it was a completely man-made crisis, and all I can say is, when's the next one? Because not just in food, but in some other you know commodities, you know it's going to happen again and again until somehow we as a society you know get a handle on figuring out how this stuff should be regulated and uh, and how it can be done, but done sensibly. People can make money, but uh, no one will get hurt, you know, either here or abroad. And I'm afraid that maybe people will have to get hurt here uh, in the next bubble bursting. It won't be real estate. Maybe it'll be something else that I haven't figured out yet. You know, maybe it's water, you know. 
uh, anyway, thanks for your show and thank you so much for teaching me something that uh, I really need to know, needed to know about and really wanted to know about. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And just to quickly respond to John from San Francisco, who just uh, left a message about the segment uh, explaining the hunger crisis from a couple of years ago. The person he is referring to who gave that explanation on the show is a British journalist named Johan Hari, and uh, he's a you know great, great journalist and has his own podcast, so you can find it yourself. Uh, it's uh, you know very well thought out and well produced, and uh, so he puts it out once a week, I believe, and it's only about 15 minutes long, so it's not even adding you know much to your podcast schedule if you want to check that out. You can just search for Johan Hari on iTunes or Johan Hari Podcast in Google or something like that, and I'm sure it'll come up. Um, it, funny story, like uh, through the magic of Twitter, Johan caught wind that uh, his segments, you know, that his show was being listened to by me and and included in the show, and he got very excited because it turns out that he's a listener. So uh, there's a fair chance that he just heard the voicemail you uh, sent in and will be, uh, you know, very gratified to hear that that it was appreciated. I didn't ask him how he happens to come across the show, uh, so I, you know, I don't know how he found me, but there's a really, really decent chance that he found me the same way I found him, which is uh, by being referenced on uh, Citizen Radio. So basically, um, you know, I, I have Citizen Radio to thank for introducing me to, to him, and uh, you know, for all I know, the reverse is probably true because I, I know that he's friends with those guys as well. Now, speaking of Citizen Radio, I have one more voicemail that I'm going to play at uh, you know after the end of the show, as I've been doing uh, on occasion recently. And uh, there are two unique things about this voicemail. One is that it's critical, and the other is that the cell phone reception is terrible. So uh, I I want to play it because I don't ever want anyone to think that I you know filter out voicemails that I don't agree with or are critical of the show or, or anything like that. If you send in a message and it's like coherent uh, and not you know five minutes long, then um, then I'll, I'll play it. I don't, I don't mind there being uh, you know criticisms being played by voicemail the, the, but you know I, I couldn't put this one in with like the regular batch because it's a little bit hard to listen to. So I just wanted that disclaimer that I'm putting it out there. I'm shoving it at the end so that if you don't want to listen to it, you can you know easily skip past it. But um, that's you know the the quality of it is why it's at the end, not the you know content of it. Now I just want to thank some people, uh, the volunteers, Mike, Colette, Todd, Joe, Laura, and Lauren, who helped make the show possible, and a couple of members, Robert J, who signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on uh, May 29th of last year and has stuck with the show ever since then, uh, and uh, William C, who signed up for a socialist uh, yearly membership uh, back on May 21st of last year and has stuck with the show as well. So huge thanks to Robert and William and all of the members and donors who keep the show going. I couldn't do it with without you guys and and of course the, the volunteers make a huge difference just in the pure quality of the show you know I could do it without them as as I proved I could uh, for a long time but it took a lot more time and and the quality uh, you know I, I couldn't find as much great stuff as as they helped me find 
Now, of course, as I always say, everyone can help support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can donate your Twitter uh, followers to us at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. You can stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online to your uh, networks by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter themselves. And for details about the show, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor He'll take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like It's just a fond farewell to a friend Hello, Jay. Uh, my name is Daryl. Uh, I called once before from California to weigh in on the, the movie of who uh, Jamal uh, uh, deal you had going. Today I'm calling, um, I was listening to the last podcast, um, one with the picture of Newt, something like Kermit the Frog there, uh, Kermit the Frog with Newt on his name, and I was listening to the last clip with uh, Citizen Radio, and uh, I, I tried to listen to those guys for a while, and um, I think that last clip kind of kind of said it all why I don't listen to them. Uh, they probably don't understand that their worldview does not reflect everyone else's and therefore make everyone else wrong. And that's, I think that's what they think it is. Like I said something about uh, people getting down, people because they're vegan when they're doing the right thing and we should all be doing that. that that's, um, to me, if, if they made a law to make it illegal to be vegan, I would fight against that. And if they try to make a law to make it illegal to eat meat, and enjoy your food the way you like it, I would have been against that too. So when they say things like that, it's as if they believe that their way is the right way and everybody else is wrong. They got down on President Obama as this war criminal because he escalated a war in Afghanistan. If you go back to the election, prior to the election, he made it clear he was going to fight the war against uh, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So, uh, you know, they say everybody who says that Obama did that, blah, blah, doesn't get on him for it, is an Obama apologist. That's the, uh, again, their real view is, if, if you don't agree with them, you're wrong. That and, and the fact that they cut every good word, you know, you start getting out of, out of junior high school, you have to put a few more, other, a few more words in your vocabulary. My, that's my problem with them. I, I listen to just about everybody you sent me to. I've enjoyed many of them. And I gave them a pretty good good run. And uh, Just that clip right there sends it all. You know, we all have bring something to the table. No one's completely right. I'm definitely not completely right about everything. And once they realize that 
you know, they're not completely right either. They may start making a little sense. Thanks for the opportunity.